Welcome to Free and Fair with Fernita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues surrounding the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Fernita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs at the University of Southern California, Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University, Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hey, Fernita, good to see you. Hi, Ned, how are you? Good to see you as well. Uh, yes, I'm doing okay. Um, I'm hearing that you had a big keynote address and uh, would love to hear more about it. I'm sure our listeners would as well. Yes, yeah, so um, so a lot of it I have you to thank for. Our conversations have really um, had my wheel spinning about um, our future as a democracy. In our last conversation, we talked a lot about the fallout from the Capitol insurrection and um, things that needed to happen in order for us to move forward and for there to be some accountability. Um, and so one of the things that I focused on in the keynote, one of the big themes is the, this gap between sort of what the Constitution requires, what the Constitution says about democracy, and how it has deviated from our expectations for what democracy is. Um, one of the um, big parts of the talk was about how um, the uh, framers of the 14th and 15th Amendments uh, kind of laid out the bare minimum in terms of enfranchising African-Americans by uh, prohibiting racial discrimination in voting. And then they used legislation to fill in the blanks. Um, and one piece of legislation that they used in particular was the Reconstruction Acts that readmitted the former Confederacy, um, the states in the former Confederacy back into the Union. And so in these Reconstruction Acts, one of the things that uh, the folks in Congress laid out was this, this notion that you can't disenfranchise people who are allowed to vote under the new state constitution, right? So this is their way of trying to keep states from disenfranchising black people after they've been readmitted back into the union. But even more importantly, these Reconstruction Acts also spoke about felon disenfranchisement, which is still a huge issue today. Um, so uh, the Reconstruction Acts provided that uh, individuals could not be disenfranchised except for felonies at common law. Uh, which is language that has a very specific meaning. The the category of crimes that qualifies felonies at common law are very small. It's things like uh, murder and larceny and um, you know treason would be a, the it's the only crime defined in the Constitution. You can imagine someone being disenfranchised for that. But generally speaking, it's only a handful of crimes that qualify as crimes um, that are felonies at common law. Uh, and so. In some ways, people in Congress were trying to use the Reconstruction Acts to shed light on what the constitutional text means, because Section 2 of the 14th Amendment also talks about disenfranchisement for commission of a crime and how that is permitted and a state won't suffer the penalty of reduced representation if they disenfranchise individuals who commit a crime. Well, if you read both Section 2 and the Reconstruction Acts together, um, it's pretty clear that Congress wanted to limit that to felonies at common law and not give states the ability to just disenfranchise for any crime. Now, of course, the, the Supreme Court's jurisprudence has evolved to where they've ignored all of that, right? Richardson versus Ramirez pretty much permits, is a Supreme Court decision in which the court found that felon disenfranchisement does not violate the Equal Protection Clause because Section 2 allows states to disenfranchise for commission of a crime. But they ignore that the Reconstruction Act sought to limit that language to felonies at common law. 
Um, and as a result, we find ourselves in a situation today where states disenfranchise for hundreds of crimes. Um, and you have controversies like we had in the fall with uh, Amendment 4, uh, where Florida sought to uh, continue to disenfranchise those who didn't pay uh, their fines and fees. And Florida is one of those states that disenfranchised for over 500 different crimes, as opposed wow. to the, you know, the dozen or so crimes that count as felonies at common law. So um, the, the point of the talk is to was to sort of highlight that um, we, we try to fill in the blanks in our democratic uh, system through our assumptions and our norms. But that only holds as long as people are willing to respect those assumptions and norms. And sometimes we have to actually update the constitutional text to better reflect who we are as a society so that there's not so much of a mismatch between the text and our democratic expectations. Enter, yeah. Interesting and important. I mean, yeah. In when I teach the gerrymandering uh, topic to my election law students, as I was doing the last couple of weeks, I was saying, who should we blame for the problem of gerrymandering? The Supreme Court for refusing to intervene to to save us, or should we just blame the Constitution for you know establishing rules that allow for gerrymandering? And and don't we need maybe to to change our Constitution so it conforms to better expectations? Mm-hmm. Um, that, I think that would be another illustration of the general point that you're raising. Right, absolutely. And when we fail to update, uh, and don't get me wrong, Ned, norms are important, right? Uh, assumptions are important. So it's hard to memorialize everything to be responsive to how democracy actually works, right? We know democracy is messy, right? So the Constitution, there's always going to be this gap between our, our constitutional text and our expectations. But that being said, it's still really important to update. Uh, because you can backslide and end up in a situation where we are living in a democracy where states are uh, just given the bare minimum, right? So um, it it doesn't mean much to have a prohibition on racial discrimination in voting if you can disenfranchise that demographic in other ways that the Constitution might not capture. Um, And states have figured out very creative ways to disenfranchise, right, which means that we really need to update our constitutional text for, um, as I've advocated in the, in the past, having a constitutional amendment that protects an explicit right to vote. Um, we have um, really, um, we have, uh, I don't want to say exhausted the limits of the text, but it's not enough for, for the right to vote to just be protected by negative inference. <laughs> right? We have, adv- we have advanced to a point where we need some positive affirmation in the Constitution that the right to vote is important because states are creative and the Supreme Court has shown that it's not willing to um, expand the state's obligations to its citizens with respect to voting rights. And so that update is important. Right, right. Well, and there's another aspect of, of updating the Constitution that you and I have talked about before uh, and it's worth mentioning again, the whole desire to get rid of her, the Electoral College, which m- oh. many Americans want to do, but seems like hard to do. And, and um, we may have touched upon this in our last episode, but I, you know, I, I'm, I'm worried that next election, presidential election, you know, again, already, who, it's like, why are we thinking about 2024 when we just finished 2020? But I think we could have another gap between the national popular vote winner and the Electoral College winner and our society might just say enough is enough. And, and, and so there seems to me there's like an imperative to amend the Constitution to, to bring it up to date to our democratic expectations like you're talking about, but I just don't see it realistically happening. 
in the next four years in right. this in that respect yeah I'm, i don't i don't know if the political will is there and we we actually talked about this a little bit in an earlier episode when we when we discussed how if we make it through this then people will be relieved but that also pre- prevents significant progress right like meaningful structural structural change because people and 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 hasn't this been the story of America, right? The 1876 election was awful, uh, but you didn't get uh, the Electoral Count Act until 11 years later. It literally literally took two more close elections for them to finally say, okay, maybe we need to fix this thing, Uh (laughs) right? So, you know, my fear is that because we've emerged from this election cycle um, intact, definitely battered, definitely bruised, Right. But intact in that people will forget how close we were to just absolute disaster, uh, because to some extent, and, and this is actually sad, too, we have conditioned ourselves to get used to the fact that the popular vote winner might actually lose the election. Right. I don't you know, 2000, it was like, oh, my God. But but that was only because it was the first time in over 100 years where that had happened. 2016, I think people were disappointed uh, Wednesday morning after the election. But I think by Friday, people had sort of accepted that Hillary Clinton lost that election. Right. Like you, you it's just when when things happen over and over, you learn to have an, a piece about it in a way that you probably shouldn't. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Like to the extent that people were outraged about what happened in 2000 and what happened in 2016. It shouldn't take another instance in which the popular vote winner loses the Electoral College for us to say that we need to fix it. Uh, but it seems like the American way is for things to break over and over again before we finally say enough is enough. And that in itself is a problem. But I will say this was different. Right. If you think about our conversation about the Electoral College this time around, we were faced with the prospect of something that's way more ominous than the popular vote winner losing the Electoral College. We were faced with the possibility that had both houses of Congress been in one party hands, we would have a different president today. Right. Despite an election that produced a clear winner. And Mm -hmm. to me, that is much more terrifying than the popular vote winner losing the Electoral College. And it's more terrifying in part because, you know, you can hate the Electoral College, but those who who sort of created it knew that this was a possibility. (laughs) Right. They 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 sort of anticipated that there's a situation in which the House of Representatives might have to weigh in on who the next president is, that a president, a presidential election might not produce a clean result. But I can't say that they envisioned a situation where partisan politics are such where we could, that our system could produce a winner so contrary to the will of the people um, that it's even more pernicious than the popular vote winner losing the electoral college vote, right? This, I mean, it's literally if the, if the House of Representatives, if the Democrats wouldn't have took the House of Representatives in 2018, we were possibly looking at a President Donald Trump, despite the fact that he lost both the popular vote and the electoral college. Right. But so what I aren't we facing that same risk again, I hate to say. I mean, you know, our listeners may hear this episode during the impeachment trial, uh, which, as we're recording on a Friday, is scheduled for next week. Um, that trial is about whether or not President Trump, ex-President Trump, is allowed to run for office again. People say you know, the Senate's not going to convict and therefore not disqualify him. Um, So that would mean, at least theoretically, he's eligible to run again. 
I, I think it's fair to say, at least it's my judgment, that if he runs again, he's not going to change his character. No. So his attitude is there's no election that he loses unless it was stolen from him. So we could be facing in 2025, January 6, 2025 could be uglier, I hate to say it, than the insurrection that we just witnessed because it could be exactly the situation you're hypothesizing. I mean, if the if the Republicans win the midterms, as they well might, because the, the out-of-party tends to do better in the midterms, plus we've got gerrymandering on the horizon with redistricting, you know, the the Republican Party may control the House of Representatives and control the Senate, and we may see a repeat of this year, but with a different composition of Congress. Am I wrong to be worried about that? No, you're right to be worried, and I have mixed emotions about it. So, you know, on a personal note, sometimes I just want to say to hell with it. You know, because and and I know that sounds terrible, but the fact that we can sit here in 2021 and say we might have this problem in 2024 and nothing might change and nothing will change. Right. That the fact that there might not be the political will to correct something that is um, not unforeseeable. And I find that incredibly frustrating on a personal note. Um, but it, it, I'm, I'm at war with myself because as someone who cares about voting rights and cares about democracy, I'm like, how can we not keep advocating for change, right? How can we not beat the drum that this is something that we need to address? Because I think you're absolutely right. If anything, we have uh, kicked the can down the road on this issue and not resolved it. We, we su- survived something that was almost catastrophic, uh, but we haven't solved it, right? We haven't solved the, the set of conditions that made uh, what happened on January 6th possible. Instead, what we've done is set us up for another p- January 6th that's potentially worse than the one we lived through last month. Um, and that, that it makes me really sad, but I don't know how to... Uh, address that in a way that will insulate us from disaster in three years. But I do think that there are small things that we can do in order to um, make it less likely that we have another disastrous January 6th. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And part of it is that we have to continue to use our platforms to advocate for voting rights so that people know that they, you know, so that people understand how our system works. So much of what happened on January 6th is individuals who had a perception of the system based on the president's statements and statements made by other political elites that just simply was not true, right? And so in part, that made me realize how important it is that we do what we do, where we put out you know, a podcast and we write for popular press and, and sort of educate the public about the system so that they won't fall victim to the misinformation that uh, permeated uh, uh, many of the people who stormed the Capitol. Uh, the other issue is is racism, right? Uh, one of the things I was thinking about today in in uh, preparing my remarks is that racism is lucrative, right? And this is not something that, that as a country we've really come to terms with. Part of the reason that people like Marjorie, uh, what is her name, Marjorie Green, uh, the mm-hmm. woman who just lost her committee assignments, one of the right. reasons why she will remain powerful despite having essentially no power in Congress is because um, incendiary and racist rhetoric uh, resonates with a certain segment of the population, right? There's just some segment of the population that we won't be able to reach. But I felt like in the years leading up to 2020, we kept trying to talk to those people, 
<laughs> right? Like we kept yeah. trying to reach out to them. We kept trying to make them understand that, you know, this is a de democracy and we're supposed to be this inclusive and egalitarian society that we're all supposed to work towards when they're not interested in that, right? That is not, they, they could care less, right? They have a certain vision of America that is at odds with uh, the America that I like to think that I live in. And so part of it is not just about using our platforms to educate those who are open to our message, but it's also being honest and transparent with ourselves about the fact that we have a race problem in America and we all have an obligation to speak out and push against it because so much of what fueled Donald Trump's rise is racism, right? And it took far too long for us to be honest and transparent about the fact that not, well, not black people, I will say that. It took far too long for the rest of America to be honest and transparent about this fact. And I think that's why over the course of four years in which he should have been losing power, instead he was able to coalesce behind a portion of the electorate who loved his message. And we were not aggressive enough about pushing back against that me message. So much of democracy is not about just the rules of the election. It's not just about institutional design. It's also about politi political leadership. It's about um, ideals. It's about understandings. It's about conceptions. And so it's really important for us to say, look, if, if America is going to be a democracy, it is going to be a democracy that is racially inclusive. It is going to be a democracy in which people enjoy broad access to the right to vote. It is going to be a democracy where we're only doing as good as the person who's doing um, the worst in our society, right? We're gonna care about everybody. If this is the world that we're trying to live in, then we have to be more aggressive about pushing back against a Donald Trump. So it won't, it, it's not just simply enough to change the rules of the games to get rid of the electoral college. A lot of this is also cultural. And so going into 2022 and 2024, I, I, I sincerely hope that those people who believe in what I like to think America really is are aggressive and assertive about pushing that message and do not cater to the people who are talking about America of a different time. That's not the country I want to live in. And so because... I feel like there's so much possibility there and so much work to be done and things that we can do even if the political will isn't there to change the electoral college. That's why I haven't said to hell with it, right? <laughs> Instead, I am trying to work towards making sure this country is a country that my kids can live in and that our elected officials are responsive to uh, America broadly defined and not just, you know, Americans who are white and affluent. Right, right. Well, Sorry, that was a lot, Ned. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's important. Um, and you know, as I listen, I mean, I. So I have, I have two thoughts. One, to me, the easiest way I would have thought to avoid the risk of Trump doing even more damage than he already has done would be if seventeen Republican senators join the Democrats to say never again. And yet that doesn't seem to be what's going to happen. Now, maybe if if even if they don't vote that way as a practical matter, he still can't get the nomination of, of his party, you know, in four years, then he won't do any damage. But but I worry that if 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 the senators can't now come to say, you know, when the insurrection is fresh to say, okay, never again, we can't tolerate this, then then his capacity to run again is going to be whether the base wants him to run again or not. 
and and I you know I don't know how politics will play out over the next four years, but but so I guess one one way you you, you know if we're if we're worried about the future, um, I can see two things that we could do to try to prevent this. One is take Donald Trump off the stage as a matter of politics so that he, he can't be a factor. Right. But if we're not going to do that, may, then maybe we could change the rules of the Electoral Count Act so that it's absolutely clear that you can't abuse it in the way that Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz tried to abuse it. Right. Um, and so that even if Trump is the candidate or Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz is the candidate, our system will be safe from abuse. Um but I worry about no matter again your point about rules and versus culture, you know we could we could have amendments to the statute, but if 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 the folks sitting in Congress want to be swayed by a charismatic leader who tells them you must do what I tell you to do, are the rules going to be good enough to protect us in four years? Yeah, I don't I don't think so. Um... But I do. So so to be clear, I think you're right. I think that we can have statutory fixes um, that supplement um, changes that we need to bring about in our culture. Like I don't I don't view it as an either or I view it as a both. Right. I do think that we need to work towards meaningful change and not just, you know, um, with the Electoral Count Act and on the national stage, but also in the states and in, in Georgia, there's a number of bills being proposed that will make voting harder. Uh, and in fact, one of sort of the, the bane of my existence in the last two months has been the fact that the secretary of state of Georgia has been painted as his hero. <laughs> when we, we knew that when when the smoke cleared, uh, he would do what he had been doing over the course of his term and what his predecessor did before him, which is making it hard, harder to vote in Georgia. Um, and so I do think, you know, Stacey Abrams and others took the lead on this, this presidential election cycle, but it needs to be an ongoing thing where we work towards making sure at the state level that voting is more accessible and then making those fixes uh, to federal law that prevents a Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz from taking advantage of the process. But all of that being said, if we don't fix our cultural problems, then no matter how many changes we make, is there's always the prospect that you know someone who has charisma and is able to get you know garner a following can break it um and so and, and that's my worry uh that's what keeps me up at night uh josh hawley uh, might have been unsuccessful this time around but there were a, a significant number of republicans who joined him in challenging the election results it wasn't like he was going off on a ledge by himself um he he had help he had support um, those in, millions of people who voted for Donald Trump and the, the people who donated to his efforts to stop the steal, they are still with us, right? So until we can address um, our core cultural problem, the fact that some of our fellow citizens have a, a taste for uh, fascism, <laughs> then I'm not sure um, how much we can gain through technical fixes to the Electoral Count Act and so on. Uh, but I do think it'll take both. Um, and this is, of course, in lieu of constitutional amendment, because the, the hard conversation is the fact that we need to replace the Electoral College. And that's just sim there's just simply not the political will to have that conversation. And, I, and for the life of me, Ned, I will not understand why we complain about it every four years. Maybe part of it is that there's not broad agreement on what to replace it with. But we don't even get that far. 
and that and that's very frustrating to me because it's the thing that everybody hates um it's kind of like chevron right how (laughs) the justices are all over the place on chevron but they don't know what to replace it with but right our listeners uh, may not some listeners may not know about this that's all right the chevron rule in administrative (laughs) law i know what you're talking about but yes sorry (laughs) sorry folks (laughs) um uh but that this is the the framework that the court uses to review administrative agency action um and the the court, the justices are all over the place in, in whether or not they like the Chevron doctrine. Uh, but you have a similar thing with the Electoral College, with the American population more generally. Uh, everyone hates it, um, with the exception of, now I will say Republicans like it, not because they like the Electoral College, but because they like the the political benefit that they get from it, right? So you can easily ima- imagine a situation where if that benefit goes away, then all of a sudden they start to w- realize the weaknesses in the Electoral College. Uh, so that's the first thing. But then also the second thing is the fact that whether or not one likes the Electoral College turns on the political benefit that the Electoral, the electoral College bestows. That's another reason why we can't have a meaningful conversation. Right, because people are too afraid of upsetting the apple cart because they don't know how their political fortunes will fare under a new rule. Um, so I don't know if there will ever be the political will to, to fix the Electoral College for that reason, even though I think there's broad agreement that it's a problem. Right. Yeah, I mean, I as I think about things um, at the moment, and I, I wrote a, a Washington Post column that got posted yesterday that I apologize I didn't get a chance to send to you, but maybe I'll just mention the theme of it here. I I think I would put gerrymandering, I mean, I think there's a lot that needs to be done to kind of try to protect our electoral system, you know, from negative tendencies. In other words, as much as I'd like to make our system better and closer to ideal, I sort of feel like I'm, we're fighting deterioration. And, and I think between now and 2024, as important as it is to try to make progress, it's also important, I think, to try to prevent back even further erosion. And to me, gerrymandering is a high priority because if, if gerrymandering occurs, even to the degree that it happened 10 years ago, uh, and, and it could easily, that that will, you know, all I think, you know, Marjorie Green is, is a is an you know the craziness that happens in in the House of Representatives is a product, in my view, of gerrymandering. I mean, Absolutely. We have, um, and so, I you know I'm looking at the at the Senate and the filibuster rules, and and I'm thinking, can we possibly get some kind of deal out of the Senate that would end gerrymandering? Because Congress has, the Supreme Court in the Rucho case said, Congress has the power to end congressional gerrymandering. They just have to exercise it. Um, now, there's two ways that could be done. If, if Joe Manchin and the other Democrats were willing to get rid of the filibuster, you know, we could solve a lot of problems. We couldn't fix the Electoral College, but we could end gerrymandering. We could do a lot of things. But I take Manchin and, and Senator Sinema and Senator Tester at their words. They're not going to touch the filibuster. So that means you need 60 votes. Democrats have the ability to threaten their own gerrymanders in New York and Illinois in this cycle. So I think, you know, the, politics being hardball, 
I think Democrats could say, look, let's just do something for the good of the country. This is, and, and, and the senators, part of it is I think the senators understand culturally that they're not as crazy as the House. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so they, they look at, I mean, look at Mitch McConnell saying, you got to do something about this Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? I mean, she's just crazy. You got Mitch Romney, Romney saying the same thing. Well, that craziness is because of gerrymandering. So let's end gerrymandering. Let's end it so Republicans can't do it in Georgia and Texas. Let's end it so Democrats can't do it in Illinois and New York. So what do we need to make that deal? And I'd be willing, this is where I think a lot of voting rights advocates won't like my proposal, but Hmm. I would say it's worth it to trade some voter ID rules or some absentee voting rules that you can't make them horrible. but But I would say, look, it's so important to get rid of gerrymandering. We can live with second best or third best on the topic of voter ID or absentee voting as long as we can eliminate gerrymandering. And that's my the way I look at the Georgia runoffs. And, you know, I mean, Democrats could win elections in Georgia that had lousy rules from a voting rights perspective. They weren't perfect, and yet they weren't so horrible as to be outcome determinative. And so I would say, you know, if we focus on, don't make perfect be the enemy of the necessary, and, and, and I think we absolutely have to get rid of gerrymandering, or we may not have a democracy to worry about four years from now, eight years from now. I know that sounds dire, but that's why I would say we need to, we need our, we need to prioritize our, our needs and and because we're not going to be able to solve everything. I would take that deal, but I would be mad about it, Ned, if I'm being honest. <laughs> you know, like, I, I, I think you're right, right? G- gerrymandering really is the, the sort of existential threat to our democracy. And um, part of it is that because we've lived with it for so long, I think we have taken for granted this notion that we'll just continue to mosey on along even if there are there's extreme gerrymandering. But I think the gerrymandering combined with the extreme partisan polarization has taught us a lesson that I hope we learn. So I would take that deal because I do think gerrymandering is, um, it really is one of the number one problems that uh, have put our democracy in crisis. It's the number one problem that has put our uh, democracy in crisis. But I will say something. Let me explain why I'm mad about it, though. I I am. It's so annoying to me that we spent the last since 2008 really having this conversation about voter ID as if it's solving an actual problem such that it has become this negotiating tool where we have to um, treat voter ID as a legitimate thing, as if it's, you know, something that is necessary for our democracy to proceed full steam ahead. Um, as it, so let me put it a different way. Voter ID has become sort of the equivalent to the need to get rid of gerrymandering, right? Like we have to pretend like that's the case, even though voter ID isn't really solving a particular problem, right? So in-person uh, voting where you have to show an ID, uh, we know in-person voter fraud rarely happens, right? Uh, we know that fraud happens more commonly through absentee voting um, and requiring people to show an ID at the polls doesn't address that type of fraud. Yet um, we have to talk about striking a deal where we treat voter ID as if it's something that we necessarily need for democracy to survive in the same way as we need to get rid of gerrymandering. That's what infuriates me, right? I feel like it's almost like uh, living in uh, Wonderland, right? Alice in Wonderland or like it's opposite day. 
right? Because some of these political conversations are beyond me. Like I, I get what the is really going on. It's it's almost like being in a room full of people and you know everybody else is like laughing at a joke you just don't get. That's how I feel when we have these conversations about voter ID because I feel like okay, well, voter fraud isn't a real thing yet we have to negotiate the future of our democracy based on adopting a rule to address a problem that doesn't exist. Right? That that is like a bizarre place to find yourself in. Yet that is America today. Right. Even though everybody knows that the purpose of voter ID is to make voting harder, that is what it is about. Right. And the, the and the simple fact that we can't acknowledge that and proceed accordingly of infuriates me. But I get it. If the trade off of me living in Wonderland is that we get rid of partisan gerrymandering, I can live with that. Yeah, no, I hear you. And I totally respect that view. And again, if 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 we could get. Senators Manchin and Cinnamon Tester to end the filibuster. I, you know, I'd be open to that. Um, you know, as I think I've said before, I, I worry again. I, even though I totally agree with you that voter ID is solving a non-problem, I, I, I think overcoming the big lie and this fear of voter fraud requires um, that we endorse a smaller lie, essentially. Though, right? Some, I think <laughs> I, I th- or th- I guess the the. The w- more diplomatic way I would try to put it is that, um, you know, and I draw the analogy to campaign finance, you know, we just like we want some campaign finance rules to avoid the appearance of corruption, even as well as avoiding corruption itself, because appearance of corruption is, is dangerous to our political system. You know, so is the fear of fraud, even if it's not just the reality of fraud. And while I wish we didn't have to fight ghosts. Um, if if the way to fight ghosts isn't actually disenfranchising anybody, um, but again, you know, in an ideal world, you know, again, I, 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 if the Democrats had the ability to just enact a, a new piece of le- congressional legislation that that got rid of gerrymandering and solved all of this without negotiating, well, then I think we, the conversation would be different. Yeah. But it, but but I don't want I don't want the next two years to disappear with the window closing on no reform. That's yeah, right. No, I, I'm with you. But I would I mean, I do think it matters what type of voter ID would, would be required in the exchange. Right. Like right. all voter ID isn't the same. And, you know, provisions that allow people to vote who have reasonable impediments that accept right. a, a far larger uh, category of ID than say Texas's law. Um, I think I could live with that, right? But I would right. still be mad about it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and you know, our friend and colleague Josh Douglas's work has influenced me on on this, where he's written about the fact that he ne- helped negotiate uh, a voter ID law in Kentucky that was less burdensome than it otherwise would be, and one that he ultimately felt he could live with, although his preferred a view is your view of like these we don't need any of these things at all they're ridiculous and but he says look you know if if i'd rather have a an acceptable statute than an unacceptable statute so let's let's get in the arena and negotiate something out mm-hmm. and you know so so built on Josh Douglas's work you know if we could if we could get the Kentucky ID law that he was able to 
to get in exchange for ending gerrymandering. Again, that's a deal I would take. Can I just make one small point? Um, so I think you're right. That's how politics works, right? Politics is about, you know, both sides walk away with something. But the fact that the conversation is unfolding in this way, it just drives home for me the fact that we are not appreciating the situation we find ourselves in, right? Like we're still thinking about this in terms of normal politics that involves normal horse trading where one side gets something uh, and the other side gets something, even if it's, if it's not their preferred outcome. Um and, and the fact that, and even, and you see this in the conversations around H.R. 1, which is the omnibus election bill in Congress that would require independent commissions for uh, congressional districts, require them to draw them, um, that changes aspects of our campaign finance system, that reenfranchises individuals with felony convictions for purposes of voting in, in federal elections, and also H.R. 4, which is the uh, reauthorization of the preclearance provisions of the Voting Rights Act. Even conversations around the bills currently on the table, you just get the sense that people are thinking about this in terms of normal politics and not as an existential threat to democracy, right? Not that we've seen outright challenges to our democratic norms and our democratic institutions such that drastic change is needed. Um, and so that's another thing that worries me um, and also worries me about the prospect of there actually being changes because people aren't really grasping the situation we find ourselves in and they're still thinking about this in terms of normal politics. Um, and so, you know, that's another layer to me that I think we have to get past before there's any meaningful change. Yeah, I think I agree with you, but I would take it maybe in a slightly different place. I mean, and it's okay. precisely because I, I think we're in this existential crisis mode that I'm willing to do some deals that I otherwise would find distasteful. In other words, mm -hmm. it's like, um, you know, you know, normally I might walk away from a, a deal because I, I would say maybe wait, you know, wait two years or whatever. But it's like, I'm like, I'm, I'm feeling desperate. I'm feeling like, what yeah. can we do to avoid this ship from sinking? Yeah. And I'm thinking, gerrymandering might sink the ship and so i'm i'm willing to to do something that i otherwise find in, uh, unpalatable because i i think that's you know existential so that's sort of how i'm thinking of this moment oh i'm not talking about us ned i'm talking about the people yeah. who would make the request not the people who would take the deal <laughs> right like right, right. you know what i mean the people who would say you know in order to get rid of gerrymandering which is a clear threat you have to give me x this thing that sort of aligns with our you know partisan platform and our rhetoric and that helps us win elections even if it's a fake problem those people who will make that request at this time where you know we are facing the biggest threat to democracy in a generation are the ones i'm worried about Right. Because they're still thinking about short term political gain and not really focused on the long term health of our democracy. And I think this is what the, the moment demands. This is why you don't have 17 senators in the Senate willing to convict the president. They're still thinking about this in terms of normal politics. They're still worried about Trump's voters. They're not thinking about the long term threat to our democracy. Right. So this is a problem that I think stymies progress um, in this area because people are still under the misconception that there's a sense of normalcy about this that just is simply not true. Right. It's not right. normal no, no. politics. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I know. So, you know, um, we were talking earlier about, um, you know, Marjorie Greene and then we, mm -hmm. and also as, as, you know, Liz Cheney in the House was under threat of like losing her position in the 
Republican leadership, but they took a secret ballot and it turned out she did surprisingly well. And what that signals to me is that a lot of these incumbent politicians are afraid. They're afraid of Trump. They're afraid of primaries. And which, I mean, I, I don't want to justify that, but it, but it sort of suggests that their actual heart is in a better place than their behavior if we only could align this incentives with where they would prefer to be. But they can't, you know, they can't act like they would prefer to act because they live in fear of retribution. That's so um, funny to me, though, right? The sense that all of a sudden they realize that their job isn't actually to be cushy and to take, you know, I don't want to say kickbacks. That implies that everybody's corrupt. But that the job is, it actually involves work, right? You might actually have to take unpopular positions. You might anger part of your base. Um, but in a sense, this is a virtue that the founders talked about, right? <laughs> right? This is, we're supposed to elect virtuous people to office to represent the needs of the majority, which often involves doing things that are unpopular. And now it's right, But they like didn't our, want parties, right? They thought they could get the system that would get us our, I mean, I totally agree with you, and I do think we need more virtuous politicians, but I also think the founders had some assumptions that didn't prove correct. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't disagree with that. But I think in a world with or without parties, so there, I mean, sometimes actions must be taken that require political courage. I think that's independent of whether or not we're in a partisan system or not. Right. Like, yeah. But I think. Right. But I, I think if if the impeachment conviction vote in the Senate were a secret ballot, I think Trump would lose no question about it. I think the only reason why there won't be 17 Republicans voting to convict is because they are afraid, which is sad. Not violated they, their duty to their constituents then, right? Like if they believe that the president has con engaged in behavior that's impeachable, their job is to convict him. The Constitution doesn't say convict only if you're, if you're not scared. No, I know. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> I get it. You know, like, and of course, keep in mind, I'm saying this from a position of privilege, in a sense. I'm not a senator. I don't have to make a difficult decision about whether or not to convict the president of the United States of uh, inciting an insurrection. True enough. But... I do think that when you assume elected office, if anything, this moment should teach our elected officials that it comes with a certain level of responsibility in which you put yourself in positions that might make you unpopular, right? Like that might cost you donations, right. you know. Well, that, you know, I was just going to say, Adam Kinziger said, he, he, you know, he, he was a House member who voted to impeach and he says, I can live with it. I may lose my job, but... I, you know, I had to do the right thing. And Liz Cheney said the same thing, you know, I mean, uh, so I think there, you know, there are a few profiles of courage out there, just not, not enough. It'll be very interesting to see Senator Mitch McConnell, who has signaled already that he believes Trump engaged in an impeachable conduct. Um, he said it's a vote of conscience, you know, and, but he's also said that he's going to look at the evidence as a juror so I don't you know we'll have to, and you know he's the leader of his caucus and his caucus is clearly not going to go yeah. along so I you know I don't know what what's going to happen there I but think, I I think my broader point though is that I think elected officials had a certain assumption about the nature of their job and that assumption prior to our most recent misfortune on January 6th was that their job was to run for office Right. They get elected and then all of a sudden they have to look to the next election in order to ensure that they keep getting elected. 
over time, it's become less about the job itself and more so about running for reelection. Now, all of a sudden, they find themselves in a situation where they actually do have to do their job, right, where they where it actually matters. And it's not to say that it doesn't matter other times. Like, I can think of a number of policies that we need in order to make America a better place, right, that will require them to do their job. But what we witnessed on January 6th was something, it was unlike anything that any of us have seen before, right? If there's a time that demands that they do their job, this is that time, right? It is not just about running for reelection. All of a sudden, it becomes about discharging your constitutional obligation. And if you can't do that, then you don't need to be in that office. I totally agree. But, but to me, the lesson of what has happened in America since January 6th is what's most upsetting because I would have thought that more people would have had the come to Jesus moment that you're kind of talking about, like, oh my gosh, this is existential. We got to save our country. Look at what happened. And you started to hear things like that. And then they started to walk it back. And, and, and so, um, and so I don't know whether we, so I, I think we, if we want, to save our democracy and our country, we have to look at the tools that we have available, including the politicians who were in office, and we could wish them to be better, but they are who they are. And again, the thing that I worry about, I mean, we're starting to see at the local level Republicans replacing the, you know, the the guy in Michigan who did the right thing, he's not on the state canvassing board anymore. He got replaced, right? You know, um, they're looking for a way to, you know, get rid of Governor Ducey of Arizona because he did the right thing. They're looking away, you know, they're censuring Ben Sass in Nebraska because he did the right thing. They're trying to get rid of Raffensperger. So the hydraulic pressure of politics is not to say, oh my gosh, we almost fell off the cliff. Let's never do that again. Unfortunately, the folks who took us close to the cliff are saying, oh, we almost jumped off the cliff. Let's make sure that when we get close to the cliff the next time that we really jump off. (laughs) Right, right. And so I wonder, so where do we even go from here? You know, that's why, that's why it seems to me this conversation about, you know, reform efforts um, is some, is missing a mark some, because, uh, you know, this, this notion of being on the edge of the cliff, (laughs) No. And the people who um, are on the edge, they wanted to go over the last time. They wanted to go over the edge. And now they're punishing the people that kept us from going over the edge. How do you even respond to that? Right? Like, what do, what do we do? And I understand that's like a what is the meaning of life question. Mm-hmm. But your description is, is just so accurate and so terrifying at the same time. It just makes me realize that. You know, we can't talk about this in terms of normal politics. We can't ter- talk about this in, ter- in terms of the normal horse trading that occurs within Congress. We can't talk about this um, moment as if it's normal. Yet we're pushing back against efforts to normalize it, right? Like if people, if they, if they can punish the people who did the right thing, that the the message is that what happened on January six is a normal po- part of our politics, right? Uh, how do we how do we get back from that? Yeah. Well, this is mean, but I'm going to say let's let's save it for a future episode just because we're coming up on our I've got some ideas that I would love to share with you in the future that but would take 
I think, a little bit of time to unfold. So um, maybe this is a teaser to our audience to say, we're, we're not going to abandon you. We'll come back with more. Um, <laughs> we're not going to leave you hanging on the cliff <laughs> about to fall off, but uh, we'll save it for next time. How about that? Sounds good. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, take care till then. You too. That's our episode for today. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Eric French and Jillian Thompson at Ohio State and Larissa Puro at USC for their roles in producing this podcast. Fernita and I very much appreciate all the support we receive at both our home institutions to make this joint endeavor possible.